0: Uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, I'm starting in the second part of verse 10 with bold. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrongs as the wage of their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed accursed children forsaking the right way they have gone astray they have followed the way of Balaam the son of Beor who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness he's not done yet These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. the dog returns to its vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire second peter chapter 2 verse 1 the title of the message this morning is deceived deceived i need to just bring you up to speed really quick on how second peter is laid out and what its message is otherwise second peter chapter 2 seems really strange what has happened is peter has written this letter to churches advising them of how to live in Christ, in particular in light of an error that was being taught by false teachers. So in Second Peter chapter 2, it's the real meat and potatoes of what the error was they were being taught. He is calling into question the truth of the teaching of these false teachers. So as I was reading through Second Peter chapter 2, you were wondering who is the they I've got a couple of people in mind. The they are the false teachers and those who would follow them. And we want to understand what the false teachers were teaching because it provides for us a real important understanding of our own Christian life. So he's talking about false teachers who are teaching untrue things to Christians. Christians are following them and being deceived in a number of ways. So let me give you the whole outline and, uh, so you know where we're going. Number one, deceived about God in verses 1 through 3. Deceived about God in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 10, deceived about judgment. Deceived about judgment. And finally, the passage we read earlier, verse 10 through 22, deceived about what satisfies. So just look back up the top of Second Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. By the end of the morning, we will have read uh, the entire chapter. Uh, together, So just the verse, first three verses of Second Peter chapter 2, deceived about God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly br- bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Deceived about God because these false teachers were teaching something that was untrue about God and here's how that theology works out. It's a very simple theology. Imagine yourself as a 12-year-old child at home. You walk into the kitchen, there is a decorated cake on the counter, and it looks delicious. And you say to yourselves some true things. Number one, mom wants me to be happy. (laughs) This is true. That cake will make me happy, therefore, mom wants me to eat that cake. It's a very simple theology. Mom wants me to be happy. That cake will make me happy. So therefore, by definition, God wants me to eat that cake. Does mom want you to eat the cake? Maybe. There may be certain contexts where mom wants you to eat the cake, but we're presuming that later on this afternoon, the family is coming over for a birthday party and the cake is for the party. But you have come up with a way in your mind to define mom's purposes that just so happen to line up with exactly what you want. And this is what the false teachers were doing. God wants you to be happy, and sensuality and greed will make you happy. So therefore, as you express your desires through sensuality and greed, God is pleased with your happiness, and they are deceived. That is not what God wants. The deception is this, defining God based on desires Defining God based on our desires and saying, whatever I want, therefore tells me what God wants, is the same as idolatry. If we are going to define God on our own terms, you may as well chop down a tree and make yourself an idol. Because you have made him in your image, he is not making you in his. And they are deceived about God. False prophets, verse 1, rose among the people. So false prophets were coming in among these churches, and Peter is drawing their attention to the false prophets of old. In particular, we might think of King Ahab. Maybe you've heard of King Ahab in the Old Testament. He was one of the really bad kings of Israel, the northern ten tribes of Israel. Really bad king. He did lots of really bad things. Think of a bad thing. He's done it. He probably had a committee put together how to do it best. And so he's did. And not only that, King Ahab and King Jezebel were doing all kinds of bad things. But most importantly, in relation to our passage today, they were extraordinarily religious. They weren't secular humanists. They were religionists. And they had come up with a way of redefining religion to do whatever they wanted. And so what they did is they gathered around them religious authorities, prophets, prophets, who would tell them what they wanted to hear. Is it okay for me to steal this man's property and murder him, Mr. Prophet? And Mr. Prophet would say, I don't see the problem with that. In fact, he would usually say something like, I have gone and consulted with God and God has brought me a message and his message says, you are the hand of judgment on this man who owns this property that you just so happen to want. So you ought to take it from him and I will be glorified in your murdering of this man to steal his property. And these are false prophets. It is a destructive heresy to say that God is what I want when I want. See, a lot of times we think of heresy as people teaching wrong things theologically, fancy philosopher things. And these things you might say are heresy to teach that Jesus is not God is a heresy. But the destructive heresy here is to say that which I want by definition is what God wants. So if I want to express my sensual desires in any of a number of ways outside of marriage, therefore, that must be what God wants. And certainly he understands. If I want to pursue my happiness and confidence and strength by amassing as much wealth as possible, then certainly that is what God wants. And I'm only picking on sex and money because those are the things discussed in this passage. Sensuality and greed. And what these false prophets were doing were exploiting the people... Because the false prophets knew what they wanted. Does anybody want to be happy with how much money they have? No, none of us. Right? Of course we do. And the false prophets know this. And they exploit that. And so a false prophet might do something like this You want to buy a house, and you can afford house X. You can't afford house Y. What you ought to do is buy house Y, you can't afford the down payment on it. No problem. Perfect fix. Take the money you have saved for the down payment and send it to me. And then God will miraculously provide for me, Your, I mean, God will provide for you, your, and you say, this doesn't really happen, does it? It happens all the time. And it's false prophets with an F, not a PH. Seeking to exploit our own greed to tell us that what we want is what God wants so that they might exploit it to their own profit. You know what you want. God ought to want it for you. And so I will teach you what you want to hear to the degree it benefits me. And the same thing is true in marriage. I'm unhappy in marriage, someone might say. And so what if I have a little fun on the side? God wants me to be satisfied. And a false prophet would say, Yeah, of course God wants you to be happy. Nobody wants you to be miserable. And so therefore, they will tell us exactly what we want here. Of course, having a little personal contact by text that nobody knows about isn't going to be a problem. God wants you to be happy and fulfilled and you're not getting your fulfillment at home, so a little fun on the side is not a problem. And this is very commonplace. And we say, well, God must want me happy, so therefore I get to eat the cake Because God made the cake and God is saying, that is not how this works. We are deceived about God. Verse two, many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow. He's talking to Christians here. Many will follow their sensuality. Lo and behold, if you teach that God wants you sexually happy in any way you see fit, and God wants you to have all the money you should have, people will think that sounds good. Really? Right, I mean, this is Captain Obvious stuff. But most of us as Christians, well, no, most of not people don't believe that's true. Of course they believe it's true. In fact, we ought to recognize we believe it's true, right? Okay, what's your number? I've asked you this before. Let's just reflect. What's your number? You know what I'm talking about? No idea what I'm talking about, do you? That number, if I had X in the bank account, everything would be fine. Finally, everything what's the number it's different for everybody if you're a kid it's like 35 cents for a pack of gum I so you think you can buy gum for 35 cents anymore can you i don't even know you can't some of a little boy i need a million bucks i'm getting ready to retire i need two million bucks i'm getting ready to retire i just need the the house paid off and then everything will be fine what's your everything will be fine number certain more whatever it is it's more right rockefeller said that. how much money do you need just another dollar And that that is what that, well, certainly God wants me to be at peace. And in order to have peace, I need this number in the bank account or this thing paid off or this asset set aside. So therefore, God wants me to have this thing. And if I don't have this thing, either God's mean or something's wrong. And so we, we get thinking this way too. We redefine God based on what we think ought to be. And the way Peter describes that is a destructive heresy. What's it on the flip side? Well, certainly we would never have an affair, but things aren't going well at home, and it's okay if I talk to my coworker for an extra five minutes. There's nothing wrong with just building that connection. I'm not talking with my spouse. Well, at home, and I need to get some things off my chest. Nothing bad is going on. Nothing, nothing is across the line. Well, I mean, I might text later that night and say, "Well, sleep well." Nothing, we're not crossing the line here. I'm not having an affair. God is certainly okay with me having this important connection. And the question is, am I redefining God based on what I think fulfills my needs? Or am I defining my needs based on who God is? And to define God based on what I want or think I ought to have is a destructive heresy. And it's a deception that we either told ourselves or somebody else told us. Many of us today are now saying, I came out on a holiday weekend. I don't need this. We're not even close to done. I mean, we're just like idling the engine, okay? We're just, okay. Anyway, uh, look at what he says. Verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And look at this promise. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Be aware to believe and follow destructive and heresies about God will bring judgment and it is not passive it is not on hold it excuse me it is coming jesus is coming in glory he is coming in power and he is coming in judgment and he is wanting the false teachers as well as those who would follow them to recognize jesus is not playing we don't get to redefine him on our terms and when he return, act like everything's cool he will say everything is not cool You lied about me, deceived about God. Now, many of us are not biblical experts. In fact, none of us are. But here's just a little something I'm going to give you before we move on to verses 4 through 10. Uh, A litmus test on biblical accuracy. And this is a a generalized principle, so it may or may not always uh, be true. But I think it's a good guideline if you're listening to somebody on the radio or on the TV or even somebody preaching here here's a good litmus test on biblical teaching a red flag should pop up in your mind and say what's this all about if this person is telling me i get to have what i want a red flag should pop up in my mind say as soon as i hear something that tells me god wants you to have everything you want god wants you to be happy and fulfilled in some way other than christ a red flag should pop up in my mind and say i'm not going to call this guy a heretic but we're close so that flag should pop up in, if I'm listening to somebody and they're saying, if you do A plus B, you're going to get all of the things you want, a red flag should pop up in your mind and say, this might be a destructive heresy. On the flip side, if somebody gets up and says, when you follow Jesus, you're going to lose everything and maybe die, a flag should pop up in your mind and say, this guy might know what he's talking about because that sounds Jesus-y. Now, that may be not what you want to hear. But at least you're being told the truth. I am working so hard to not make a best life now joke. Just, you not know, doing pretty good. Did I blow it by saying it? <laughs> deceived about God. Secondly, deceived about judgment. Beginning in verse four, we need to understand. Mom is coming home, and she will find the cake. Mom is coming home, and she will find the cake. There is a lot of ways to get out of eating the cake, and I know a number of them. Some of you might even be more skilled. You'll learn, move the frosting to the side, eat the cake underneath, put the frosting back. You're going to want a good stiff frosting for this move. And this is what we do. We come up with all kinds of, we hide, hide the cake. What, what happened to the cake? I have no idea. I have no idea what happened to the cake. <laughs> Blame shift. Bill ate the cake. The dog ate the cake. It was chocolate cake. How's the dog still alive? I know, It's a miracle. I prayed over him. He got better. He's fine. Or rebel. If you don't want me to eat the cake, don't leave the cake out. That's just how, the, how we're going to roll around here. You want me to not eat your cake, you put that thing in a cage. You leave that out, you may as well put a sign up, eat my cake. So now I'm going to just rebel. Or maybe we're going to make a new cake. I ate the cake. I'm going to own the cake. But I don't know how to bake a cake. I'll just make another one. No harm, no foul. And and what we become deceived about is this. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Let's read verse 4 through the first part of verse 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under judgment I should say punishment, until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So we eat the cake. Mom comes home and we're busted for eating the cake. But everybody's coming home for the party. And so mom says this. You're in trouble. I don't know what I'm going to do about it, though. We're going to have to talk about it after the party. Oh, isn't that the worst? So now I've got to go through the whole party wondering what is this great judgment that's going to come? What is the judgment of mom? Maybe she'll do that old routine where punish me for eating a cake by baking six cakes, making me eat them all. I can dream, right? <laughs> then the party starts. Everybody's coming over and you're watching mom now like a hawk. She seems like she's in a pretty good mood. I think maybe she's forgotten about it. I think I'm in the clear here. I think everything's going to be hunky dory. You're refilling her drink. Whatever that might be, right? Um, it doesn't help if it's just lemonade. I don't know if anyway. Maybe. I think I'm off. I think I'm out. I think I made it. Party leaves, everybody dismisses, and mom comes out. Let's have a conversation. Oh, I thought I was in the clear. And this is what he is saying here we think we get to do whatever we want and judgment's not coming because God hasn't showed up in this moment. But he is saying a moment is coming where God will return in glory, in power, and everything now will be seen in reference to him. Everything will be seen in reference to him. And the reason Peter writes this passage, especially to the false teachers, is this. The fact that you teach false heresies and don't get judged in the moment should not make you think God is not going to judge your destructive heresies. Let's look at God's track record. When the angels followed Satan and rebelled against God, they were consigned to judgment. When the world rebelled against God, God sent the flood and judged the world that had rejected Him, saving only Noah by His grace. When Sodom and Gomorrah lived in rebellion against God, god judged them saving only lot and his family by his grace the lesson here is just because you're not judged today and rebelling against god does not mean you're not judged and that day is coming and we ought to live knowing that day is coming these three examples the angels of the world we know that sometime in history past the angel many of the angels maybe up to a third of the angels rebelled against god and followed satan we, we discover is god judged them but we know their final judgment is until the end. The world of Noah was judged in spite of the delay. Noah didn't go to water world and buy an ark. He had to build the thing and it took a while. And he built it not on the ocean or in a lake, but he built it in the, probably in the middle of a meadow. So everybody walking by mocking Moah. Moa. Moa. <laughs> mocking Noah. Because the Bible tells us elsewhere that Noah preached the gospel to them by the ark essentially saying any who will get on this boat will be saved from judgment none did so the delay came and finally say well this this ark will never save anybody because there is no need to be saved from anything and when they're treading water it's too late and so the argument here is God judges the rebellious Make sure that relationship is fixed before the judgment comes. The same is true of Sodom and Gomorrah. God calls Lot and his family out and he leaves, but not everybody does. Lot's daughters were married and their husbands didn't leave. So instead of escaping judgment through grace, they stayed saying judgment will never come and judgment came. Look at what it says about Sodom and Gomorrah. They are an example of, of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So when we read stories in the Old Testament about judgment, and there's many of them, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jericho, places where God went in and had judgment, the point is this, every person has a moment in their life where we will have to stand before God and account for ourselves. Are we righteous or are we not? And the Old Testament is an example many times of those who had to face judgment. The example should be to us. Make sure when that day comes, we are not judged. That is what Peter is calling us to do. Escape from this wicked generation, he preached in Acts chapter 2. They are an example that even though it's not happening right now, doesn't mean it's not happening. God is able to do two things in the time before judgment. And the two things are this. Preserve the righteous and hold the judged for judgment. Noah and Lot are those examples. Even in the midst of a judged generation, God is able to hold righteous those he has made righteous by grace. So God is able to do things. Hold the righteous out for righteousness and ensure that those who have rebelled against him will receive judgment. And the time between now and judgment is short. The time between now and judgment is, excuse me, short. I'm going to take a drink of water that Jeff has provided. That's good. Almost as good as Ben's the other day. You guys are doing pretty good. All right. Okay, look down at the last couple of verses. Verse 9 and 10. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment till the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So you say this as a believer, you say, well, how am I supposed to survive living for Christ in this culture? You are supposed to survive living for Christ in this culture knowing he will hold you. You don't have to gin up the strength to do it. We just have to trust that God can hold us in him until that day. Knowing also that a day of judgment will come when those who have rebelled against God, specifically relating to the lust of defiling passion and despising authority, will face up to God one day for redefining God on their own terms sex and money passion and power I want what I want when I want it and I don't think there's gonna be any consequences I want what I want when I want it and I don't think God is concerned over this decision about a relationship that I shouldn't be having or about money I am spending or keeping and we are deceived about judgment if we think even as Christians there won't be a time where we get to sit down with God by grace in Christ and have a conversation about our decisions did our decision making even as Christians recognize that God was intimately involved in everything we decide to do and don't do in relationship or with our stuff and to act like God is disinterested or doesn't care is a destructive heresy. Well, God doesn't care if I buy lunch today. Well, I'm not saying he's got a rule on it, but we ought to at least have him be a part of the conversation. We're deceived about judgment. If there is no judgment, our ethic becomes this, what do I want to do right now? If there is no time where we have to give an account, either as a believer or a non-believer before the Lord, then our ethic becomes, what do I want to do right now? That becomes our ethic. And that can become a very destructive way to live. Deceived about God. Assuming God wants everything I want. Secondly, deceived about judgment. Assuming God may not want what I want, but he's on break. So we're good. And that's a terrible deception. Okay, finally, last few verses, 10b through 22. We've already read it deceived about what satisfies there's a parable or a a truism you might quote it says absence makes the heart grow fonder right you've heard of this absence makes the heart grow fonder this is absolutely true except when it isn't so we become deceived we think well jesus is gone and my desire for christ alone is not increasing in his absence In fact, it seems like it's decreasing in his absence and in the emptiness, I want to pursue something which will make me feel alive and my yearning for Christ has gone away. And so therefore I will replace that yearning for Christ with my own passions and desires. What does it mean to live a life that says I am defined by pursuing my passions and desires? The Bible is very clear. Verses 12 through 21. We'll just kind of hit some of the high spots. To pursue my life as defined by what I want and seeking my own satisfaction, here's what the Bible says, verse 12, that is like being an irrational animal, a creature of instinct. Congratulations. If your life is defined by pleasing your body, that is the same thing for every mammal on planet Earth. Really setting the bar high. Pursuing the next meal and the next sexual relationship. And the the Bible, he's not pulling any punches, is he? Okay, watch National Geographic Channel for 10 minutes and you're going to see that over and over again. And somehow we think, well, my life ought to be defined by my animal instincts, that which I desire in this moment. And the Bible says that's not being more human, that's being less human. To arise to being made in the image of God in Christ We pursue not our passions and our desires in the moment, instead we pursue our passions and desires to be fulfilled in Christ, which is a long-term goal and means in this moment I may be dissatisfied. What are the other ways he describes? People who live to pursue their own passions. Blaspheming about matters in which they are ignorant. Okay, That's nice. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime and their blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Here's what we discover about these particular false teachers. What they're doing is they're reveling in the daytime. Even irreligious folks, if they're gonna really crank it up, go to Vegas. And what do we say if you're gonna go to Vegas and really tear it up? Oh, you're gonna act like you don't know. What happens in Vegas? stays in vegas that's right why do we say that because the plan is to go do shameful things and i want my shameful things there and not bring my shameful things here these false teachers say what happens in vegas goes on facebook live stream because we have no shame whatsoever on what we are doing not only that they feast with the christians so what these false teachers are saying is whatever i want to do i'll tell you what i want to do I'll show you what I'm gonna do, and not only that, I am a very religious person. I'm gonna be in church every Sunday. I'm gonna be a heavy hitter in the donation category. I'm gonna volunteer on Sunday mornings, although you probably won't pass background check at this point, right? These are religious people, and he is saying, in their deception, they have decided, they have self-deceived to such a degree, I can live in ways that the world at large thinks is shameful And convince myself God is cool with it and I can be a strong functioning member of a church community it's a complete deception and not only that it's deceiving about what satisfies the assumption here is this is going to satisfy me when do you have enough sex to be satisfied when do you have enough food to be satisfied when do you have enough drink to be satisfied when do you have enough money to be satisfied when is it Hadn't happened yet, but we're going to keep chasing it. And that's what these folks are saying. At a certain point, we say, wait a minute. God has made us for something better, even though the satisfaction isn't as immediate. He has made us to be satisfied, not in the stuff of this world, but to be satisfied in Christ alone. And you say, but I'm still yearning. Well, this means we are going to, by faith, say... I may be desiring this stuff by faith. I want to desire Christ alone. And one day, all my satisfactions will be found in him and him alone. Look at verse 14. Let's talk about Balaam. You guys remember Balaam? Here, Balaam is their example. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor. Boo. That's a, okay, good he loved gain from wrongdoing. He didn't love gain. Dude didn't just like a dollar bill or two. He wanted gain from wrongdoing. So what he did is he was hired by a country that wanted to destroy Israel. Israel was making their way from Egypt to the promised land and they hired Balaam son of Beor to curse the people of of Israel. So every time he got on the mountain, they would offer seven sacrifices. He would then go to pronounce his curse, and he would pronounce a blessing. It was really irritating. They did it over and over and over again, and the guy blessed him over and over and over again. He was still getting paid, so he was cool. Finally, he said, listen, I can't curse him. God won't let me. So I'll tell you what to do. I know what these guys like. They like the ladies. What you do is you go to this other country that is not from Israel. There aren't the people of God and you get a bunch of their people and you go into them and you entice them into adulterous relationships and then God will bring judgment on them. So I can't curse them, but I bet you can get them to do something for God to stand in their way. And that's exactly what happened. And in his going, in his planning, God then rebukes him from a donkey. And there are so many jokes that could be made. Almost all of them would be inappropriate. If you want to hear them properly, you have to come to men's Bible study where that's okay. You say, well, that's not right. Okay, come and find out. All the guys who go, they're like, okay, I'm bringing my joke. We're going to have a Balaam's donkey joke fest Wednesday morning. I'm going to have to make more bacon. All right. So he is rebuked by a donkey. Here's the point that Peter is making. To pursue my life for my own desires is animalistic. That is what every animal does. In fact, to do so leads me to be open to being rebuked by an animal. To pursue my life to satisfy my own desires, whatever that might be. In this passage, it's sex and money, but it might be a number of things that we say, I must have this to be happy. The Bible says, at that point, a basic animal could bring a rebuke to you. Saying, you're living just like me. I just look for the next meal. I just look for the next warm body. And that is the description he has given for the idea that we will pursue whatever satisfies us. Because satisfaction in our flesh is insatiable. We went on vacation. We went to a buffet. Anybody ever been to this? This is a really good buffet. They had sushi. They had prime rib. And I ate until it hurt. I ate. You would call it gluttony. Except in the Bible, what we call that is occasional feasting. It's a, it's a totally different thing. Okay? If you do it every day, it's gluttony. You do it once, it's just celebrating the blessings of God. I left. What did I do the next morning? Because we are on vacation, we are at a ho- I still went down, made two waffles, had some pancakes. I, I got hungry. It does, and any desire that comes from our flesh, there is no satisfying it. It is, by definition, insatiable we need to get the bible is telling you something that's true you know it's true but you're hedging your bets whatever you say when i have this it will all be okay the bible is saying it won't be pursue satisfaction in christ alone look at how it describes these things we pursue verse 17 these promises pursuing our flesh for satisfaction are waterless springs that means you go to a spring of water, you're dying of thirst, and you go to the spring and there's no water in it. It made the promise of satisfaction and it made none. Worse than that, it's mists driven by a storm. We've got a clear indication of this. You go to one of these false teachers, I am thirsty, what do I do? They hand you a cup and they say, go out to the beach in Florida, the water's almost here. It's going to be coming down in buckets and it will kill you. And that's what, that's what it's saying, it mists driven by a storm, we go in for satisfaction and we're destroyed. Not realizing how dangerous it is to pursue our own satisfaction. The promise of satisfaction guarantees starvation, guarantees slavery, guarantees judgment from God. Look at the last verse of the section. This is true, what has happened to these folks. The dog has returned to its vomit, the sow after washing herself returns to wallow and mire. These are false teachers who for the sake of religion are pursuing that which has killed us. For the sake of religion are pursuing sin and their own passions. After having sought to know God, have abandoned him and said, I will pursue my own satisfaction and wallow in the mire. Deceived about God, deceived about judgment, deceived about what satisfies. Okay, just a couple of quick Uh, application comments or questions before we uh, close. What is God's role in your life? When you think about God's role in your life, what is it? And let me frame it this way, just as a way of sort of defining this in your own mind. Is God's role in your life, is He there to affirm for you that everything's fine, you're good? Is God's job in your life to just tell you whatever you're doing is fine? Or Is God's role in my life by the Holy Spirit a call to something different than what I would want? And what the Bible calls that is being conformed to the image of Jesus. Is God's role to confirm for me that I'm okay? Or is God's role in my life to call me to something better, which is to be made like Jesus? And we need to understand what is God's job? Or I should say this, what do we want God to do? Does he just say, you're fine? Or is he going to move me to something better, which is being made like Jesus? Jesus. We need to understand which of those we want. Because to make us like Jesus, the Bible is very, very straightforward. The way he does that is by the Spirit, through the Word, in suffering. That's Second that's Peter in a nutshell. Be made like Jesus, by the Spirit, through the Word, in suffering. So if you want God's job to be to tell you everything's okay, you can do what you want, the Bible says that's not his job. And you're going to be disappointed. Okay, next question. And you're going to realize you thought you were mad now. How about this one? What is that one part of your life that is only okay because no one knows about it? Now, everybody, just so you know, if you're feeling really guilty, everybody's got one. So what's that one part of your life, the only reason it's, it's okay is because nobody knows about it? So what we discover here in our deception is God knows about it. And he's not playing He's going to do whatever he needs to do to draw that out of you. That's going to be a process that is more beneficial to you and glorifying to, the God, to God the more quickly we can say, I repent, God, that's yours. I don't need that anymore. What is that part of our life that's only okay because no one knows about it? God knows, and he's going to go after it. more questions when it all falls apart and everybody's life falls apart at some degree in various times when everything falls apart the wheels comes off the tragedy has happened what or who do you turn to to make it through when it all falls apart where do we go to say it's okay is that thing madness that's what Balaam was doing he was going somewhere to make sure everything was okay and for him it was money Who's dollar bills, yo, stack them up? Everything will be okay. It's madness. Is it the bottle? Everything's falling off. A six-pack should help. It's madness. I mean, we get it, right? Totally get it. But it's madness. Is it anger? Everything's falling off, but I feel better if I, I, feel better if I blow my stack for a few minutes. We get it. We all understand it, but it's madness. Or when the wheels fall apart and the life is it and nothing seems okay do we go to christ and say okay i guess all i get is you lord make me okay with that make me satisfied in you okay last thing some of us are feeling convicted today and others just believe a lie well that's not nice it's true but it's not nice um there's a concern here that many of us as christians and we're going to hear this well well am i a christian He's not talking about that. There's a difference between flying headlong into sin and struggling with sin. Christ is with you in the fight. The deceptive heresy is when we say sin is okay. That's the deceptive heresy that he's talking about here. Those of us, some of us are stri- fighting addictions, we're fighting struggles, the same thing has plagued us for a year, and we are with you in the fight, and Jesus is with you in the fight, and you're gonna fail Monday, and Tuesday it's gonna be worse, but Wednesday might be okay. And we're with you in the fight. That's wholly different than the heresy of, no, you're cool. Do you you see the distinction there? But we ought to be characterized as Christ followers, as those who repent quickly and say, Jesus changed my heart that I might be satisfied in you and you alone. Help me to hunger for the better meal and not the stuff of this world, which so quickly spoils. Deceived about God, about his judgment and what satisfies.